Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member BadAxe85, that's Axe, A-X-E, shares his path from classical musician, jiu-jitsu fighter, and scraping by before eventually landing at a top hedge fund, and recently a well-respected VC. Everyone thought he was crazy. Hear about his winding path and the steps he needed to take before he had his first big break, as well as some of the secret sauce that helped him to repeatedly defy the odds. Enjoy. All right, Logan, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Patrick. I appreciate what you've done for the community. So happy to get back in the way I can. Cool, man. So if you could start just with a quick bio. Yeah, so I probably have uh, one of the uh, least uh, Wall Street tracked uh, bios uh, out there. I was raised on a farm in rural Wisconsin in a beautiful place. Um, I moved overseas when I was 12. My parents wanted me to have more cultural horizons, so they sent me to live with my uncle, uh, who lived in Madrid, Spain. It was an expat. He's an awesome guy. Um, so I began really my classical music discipline over there. I turned turned out to be a guitarist, actually, instead of like a finance guy, which is totally, totally bonkers. And I look back and I think, oh, my gosh. But anyway, so I lived in Spain part of the year and then back home on the farm part of the year growing up. So I really had like kind of a bifurcated uh, uh, childhood. I went to undergrad young, didn't go to a target school. Um, I went to a nice liberal arts college called Lawrence. In, uh, how, how old were you when you went to undergrad when you say you were young? I was really young. So I, I, I had auditioned uh, as a performance um, major and I, I was accepted when I was 16. So kind of rising when I was 15 or so. I played classical music my entire life um, and it was just something that my family had values in. Uh, so I, I got admitted when I was 16 and started right after I turned 17. So I got there that summer and I was, I think, like the second youngest kid on campus. Or was it like piano? What were you playing? What did you I was play? a classical guitarist. Guitarist. Oh, cool. Yep. Interesting. So, you know, it's just straight track to hedge funds from there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. Uh, so you're, okay, so you're getting to this liberal, liberal arts college like myself. So you have... I assume there's no finance or accounting courses there. No, I no, I didn't until I did my MBA way later in life. I didn't take a single econ course or finance course or business no or anything like that. It was all so, composition and and then performance arts. Yeah. So tell me, um, you're kind of so when you graduate, where you what was the first couple things out of school? When did you kind of actually even know about finance? You probably didn't even know what finance was in terms of like careers or anything like that. It was just this vague notion. I assume. Yeah, it was kind of a vague notion as far as like true institutional finance. But I mean, I, I love business, but I, you know, essentially I was an entrepreneur then because I, I tried to be a concert artist, tried to be a classic musician. I didn't want to be a teacher. Mm. I didn't want to go back and be a professor. I made that decision early. I want to be a performer. And, and as a classic musician in the States, it's obviously it's brutal. I mean, you know, it's hand to mouth. You're, you're broke as hell. 
totally. um, in your passion. And like, I, I, that's what I fell in love with when I was in Spain, when I was a little kid, I pursued that all the way into my twenties. Um, so that's what oh, I so you were, you were still in Spain. Yeah. Well, I was in Spain part of the year until I went to college. And then when I was in college, I did my study abroad in Milan, Italy. So Entonces, habla habla español, sí, habla español un poquito. Claro, castellano. Yeah. Claro, claro. I speak with a Castilian accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, my mom's Colombian. My grandmother grew uh, was born in Barcelona, right north of Barcelona. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. no doubt. Yeah, I know the region. Yeah, yeah. So my yeah. auntie's from Navarra, so she's from like the north central. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So you're trying to scrape by your your. Yeah, dude. Tell me, tell me what those years were like, or how long? Oh, they're you... brutal. I was I was pretty skinny then, which is great. Uh, <laughs> but um i i had an athletic background too so um you still look pretty you still look like you're in good shape you're in good shape you got the patagonia it's vest you're, you, it's, you look it's all best you yeah, look I, like you're yeah. bankified now you know you get the patagonia yeah. vest it's like oh, yeah. I, I took my arteryx one off earlier it's a little chilly it's like zero degrees in chicago yeah um but yeah man so you know i, I had an athletic background too so i was a grappler um i was always too small to play football and like hockey is the other big sport and so i was kind of shrimpy so my parents put me in wrestling which turned out to be great because when i was in college uh at 17 i found brazilian jiu-jitsu and that was my passion and, and like, i loved it and so i had kind of a split so i put myself i put food on the table being a strength and conditioning coach a personal trainer but i was you know doing gigs on the side and trying to perform as much as i could and really trying to make it as a classical artist in in the so, states so how where were you living at this point how how much do you think you were bringing in yearly doing the personal training in the the classical pianist like probably like 30 to 50 grand okay so you're and you're, you're able to survive. Too. yeah i mean like once you get known as a name as a trainer and like you can weave i wove the jujitsu piece into that too say like hey you know i've won some tournaments i had some success doing that as a grappler and you know that oh, wow. brings in more, more old dudes that want to learn how to you know like so keys don't don't end up in a brawl with you because you're gonna snap a snap my arm in the wrong direction or something. Yeah, or no, 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 <laughs> put no, me no, in a lock. No. Yeah, I think you know one thing that jujitsu. If there's one thing I could take away from jujitsu, it's that it is it takes the hubris out of it because you get your ass beat so much for so many years. Like you, there's no ego left, so you build up from there. But yeah, that's cool, man. That's it. It sounds exciting. So you're you're doing that for how long? How long are you doing the personal training thing? And when does the when is the decision to kind of go the finance route happen? Yeah, early 20s. I mean, I, I left the mats and I left classical music and I walked away from jiu-jitsu and I walked away from classical music because I wanted to pursue a career in business. Um, and it was a huge risk. And, and the, you know, you reach out to your network. Like where I grew up, I had zero network. I mean, there's nobody that went into finance from like rural Wisconsin. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's a great place to be from, but it's it's a rural agrarian community and mm-hmm. and they're they're wonderful people, but it's not, it's there's no pipeline and and so i really tried i had to build my own network like brick by brick um which is one of the reasons why people reach out to me and i actually pick up the phone because like nobody picked up the phone when i was calling so yeah um so then i made that decision and i had to bootstrap and so you have to make a decision are you going to go cfa are you going to go mba what are you going to do how are you going to get in are you going to go in through wealth management usually that's the easiest track Mm-hmm. as opposed to institutional and so i set my sights on that um, most people laughed and said i was an idiot and they're like well dude you know you're a musician and then let's like you know jujitsu guy what the hell like you think you have a shot it's ridiculous like it was laughable um so i guess i'm living proof that if you think that you're on the fringe like there, you can still have a shot <laughs> so, tell me, so tell me about that thought process of like so you're you're kind of you're making a decent living. You're not, you know, you're not making a lot of money, but you're, you're surviving, you're getting clients, you're kind of spending all that time doing the training. Was it just a sense of like, I, I'm not satisfied or what attracted you to like, okay, was it, Hey, I just want to 
take care of myself, be better off financially. And yeah, I mean, sounds as, interesting. Yeah, I mean, as, as a global citizen, I mean, I was a global citizen by the time I was 12 years old because I was living in Europe at the time, uh, part in Europe, part in the States. And so I understood a little bit about business, a little bit about capital flows, but it wasn't really until it clicked in my 20s where it, it really ignited my interest and it really advanced the idea of like, I want to be a business person, whether that's an entrepreneur, whether that's somebody who works on the street. And so, you know, you go through the process of like reading books. Cause again, I didn't come from a school or a community. I didn't have any friends as like, Oh, my buddy's a banker. You should hang out with him. And he's such a cool guy and he works for whatever. Um, so I, it was, I kind of had to find my way into the asset class that I really wanted to crack into. And that happened to be uh, in research. Mm -hmm. So um, I ended up meeting a guy. I'll never forget him. He's one of my closest mentors, but uh, I'll never forget the conversation. It was through a super weak link contact. And, um, I how did you find email. him? How did you just shout him an email from what? From where did it you was, find him? So it was, it was a girl that went to college with my girlfriend at the time. Mm -hmm. And okay. I mean, it was so random because um, she said, hey, listen, uh, you know, I know this guy in Boston. I used to be his nanny. He's kind of a finance guy. I think he's really nice. Maybe he'll take your call. I don't know. And it was that. It was like that out there. That week. Yeah, and that week of a link. Totally. And so I sent him an email and um, he sent me an email back and he actually worked at this massive hedge fund. He's a, he's a PM there and just an awesome guy. And he grew up in the rural Midwest with no network and he was a wrestler. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And so, and, I, and, he, and he said, call me at market close the next day. And so I thought he was going to ask me, pitch me along, pitch me a short, you know, he's going to test my knowledge or whatever. He didn't ask me any of that. Uh, he got on the phone and he said, you have an hour of my time. Tell me your life story. What do, what do you want to do? I mean, it was, it was crazy. And so I told him, you know, my whole hopes and dreams, my whole aspirations. And he's listened to me the entire time. And he said, okay, great. Your only shot's a CFA. And uh, I signed up that week and never looked back. It took me three years. Mm -hmm. um, crack. Yep. So you started the CFA, but in the meantime, so while you're trying to pass all that, what are you doing? Do you, are you able to land? I'm working. Yeah, working. And then I was doing the same, to, but you're doing uh, the same type of stuff. You're doing the same training and the same. You're still I was, yeah. But then I, I was able to join an RIA, which is like, was a small, like $150 million fund. And they did multiple asset classes, like high net worth individuals, individual portfolios. And so that got my feet wet on the equity. So explain on the to the listeners what that means. Like what, what were you doing day to day for them? Like, yeah, so, you a investment advisor. so mm -hmm. yeah, just basically, basically a wealth manager, but not under an umbrella. And so it's, it, it was his own shop. He, he ran, his client's money and they had equity portfolios, debt portfolios, they, but we didn't sell any products. We weren't attached to any, any umbrella company. And so it was all individually crafting uh, books. And uh, so that got me exposed to equities, got me exposed to a little bit of debt. And then um, when I passed level three, I kept in touch with my same mentor um, and he gave me an internship at the end of year three. And he said, Hey, if you pass level three, um, I'll, I'll give you, you know, three months and, and you can come and work on a book. It was a $2 billion, $2 billion industrial portfolio. And so I jumped on that. And, um, after that I started, I got interviews based on that and that's how I cracked into the street. So let's talk, let's reverse a little bit. Cause it's interesting that RIAA, the, the thing to hold you over was the pay really low. What, what type of, you said you got exposed to equity and debt there, but like, what were you doing day to day? Was it like most, yeah, day -day, you're not like, you're not making trades and stuff or are you, are you? No, no, that no, you, you don't make any trades. You're more of like, you're more of like a research analyst and you yeah. say, Hey, you know, my client, they, they own too much of this. They're too highly concentrated. The family's too highly concentrated in this. They have 20% of their stock in the company that they worked for forever. And so they right. want to diversify a little bit. Um, and then, uh, and then when I went to the hedge so fund, were you making was, like 50,000 there for a base or probably less? Yeah. Well, I'd say about there. Yeah. Annualized. So it kind of replaced what you left behind. Yeah. Um, so you were able to kind of at least get something 
that's related, which was good. And then your mentor kind of came through. Yeah. Um, and got you that, that critical internship, right? That the critical internship. That's right. And I think that one of the reasons is because I always stayed in touch with them and I always gave them updates and like, mm-hmm. you know, I would encourage like the young people out there, you know, follow up, like following up is huge in this business and it, it is a mentorship business and all, and all asset classes in my view. So I think that's a super important piece is, and not only him, like I followed up with a lot of my mentors and still do today. Just, you know, you hit them back up and say, hey, I'm doing this. This is what I'm working on. Hope right. you're well. See you later. You know, connect in six months or a year. So the CFA kind of gave you enough legitimacy in his eyes where he was comfortable taking that risk of bringing you in and saying, hey, help me manage this book. Yeah, I mean, he was a PM there and he didn't really, he had one young guy working under him. Um, that was an analyst. And then I was just an intern. So, um, you know, institutionally, I didn't really know much besides what you, you have in your CFA training, right? Which is like right. super academic. and and then now you're in the long short side. And so you're looking at companies all the time and you have this huge information flow every day. And uh, that got my feet wet. And then so you're doing shorts too. You're doing not just longs. You're doing shorts. That's right. Yep. Okay. Long short. Yep. Cool. Exactly. Okay. And then um, after that, I mean, there was no, it was, it came in with the assumption that there was no job at the end of it. They didn't, they didn't hire interns. They just usually just hired senior guys and PMs. Got That's it. how that, 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 uh, that fund worked. Uh, but they're big. They're 30 billion plus. They're a huge fund. Um, and so, we use that to help leverage me into interviews on the sell side. And I was, I was picked up by a research team uh, doing semiconductors. Um, so, and like in that, I think it's important to note that, you know, I did some banking interviews as well and did some other interviews at the bulge and, and stuff like that, but pick your sector. Cause like, I, I, and I'm glad that I did because I got into tech and I, I would do it again, a hundred percent, a hundred days out of a hundred. But when you are interviewing and you have a sector focus that you really love, you know, don't take the brand name, take the team and take the sector. Like you think that's going to grow. That's definitely something that, that I would key on if I was a young person trying to break in. So you, you were saying something about tech, what you didn't take tech or you did, that was your sector. I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. Semiconductor, yeah. right. And so you kind of, you, is it because it allows you to focus more on the interviews is it because it's just something you're going to enjoy or why do you think? Well, because I wanted to have my future in it. I mean, eventually, you know, at that time, I wanted to I wanted to be a buy side investor. I, that was what I was focused on. But it's a great skill set to build if you're on the sell side and in the research side. And like, mm-hmm. I know a lot of bankers and some of them are my buddies. And, and that's, you know, a, a respectable career. But I think I really like the cerebral part of being a researcher and uh, being an author. Um, and that part of it, I really enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. I enjoyed the buy side. So then I moved to the buy side after that, um, as an investor, a global investor, global tech investor. And, uh, it's just, it's a different dynamic. And so having worked on the sell side and the buy side now in VC, there's, you know, a lot of contrast that I'm happy to talk about if you yeah, want. Yeah. T- talk to me a little bit about, um, the transition. So you, you get, you end up getting to the sell side, doing equity research day to day. You're doing, you know, you're obviously doing deep dives into companies, you know, writing up a lot of memos, doing all of that stuff that's, that you loved. It sounds like it was interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, it was interesting, but you know, it's, it's a grind, right? Like, you know, you're yeah. cranking out the earnings and like, and a lot of the buy side guys, nobody gives a shit if, you know, you write some earnings note and there's 60 other analysts that are writing that, you know, on that same company. And so it's kind of like a lot of wasted effort, but it does teach you a skill set. It teaches you how to make your voice concise. It teaches mm-hmm. you how to be succinct and how to communicate a thesis and then defend it too, because you know, you can be at a buy side shop that may be relatively small or relatively unknown or whatever. And there's, you know, there's a lot of anonymity that can go into that. Whereas yeah. if you're, if you author a piece, you have to defend it because people are going to call you up and question your assumptions. 
so tell me a little bit about like so you're there for a few years it sounds like three years two years i was there, i was on the south side for uh, about a year and year. seven months yeah eight months, yeah i see that okay so you're you're there and is the goal always similar to sell side investment banking to get to pro like buy side private equity? Is it similar in equity research where a lot of people are eventually trying to become get get to the hedge fund space or asset management yep. space? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it, a lot of them want to go buy side. Yeah. But I mean, some of them, some of them you see go corporate too. I mean, I think the the turnover in two or three years in equity research, I think is like seventy percent or something. It's don't quote me on that, but it's yeah. pretty high. And um, I think everybody's kind of going in with the idea that if I don't make senior or if like the path to senior isn't really very visible, then I want to try to go be an investor somewhere. And I always wanted to be an investor because that part of the business fascinated me the most. Mm. So I got a shot on a global tech team uh, to do that. And so I worked for one of the large mutual funds in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a hedge fund product internal to that. It was a global long short tech fund. Um, and it was an amazing opportunity because now you go to an asset base of $175 billion globally and you have so much inflow and research and like visibility and you're talking to all the banks, you're involved in all these IPOs. It was just this huge like learning process for me. So I, I love that part of it. That sounds really fun. And it sounds like yeah. it was a great career move for you to get to the buy side. So tell me about the interview process though. Was that, it sounds like it, that job, there must've been hundreds if not thousands of equity research associates and, and whatnot applying to that position. I mean, probably, and and I think that the, my why did you get it? My tenacity, uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I remember sitting down with the PM, and like I went through the interview process. You know, you went, you talk, you talk to HR, and you talk to these people, and you go through that qualitative stuff and all that, mm -hmm. and then you sit down with the PM. I remember looking at the PM in my in, in the eye, and 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 just saying, "Hey, uh, you know, I I want to be here. Like, this is my future. Whether." you know, it's here, whether it's somewhere else, like I am going to do this in some capacity in the future. I'd love to work for you. I'll work hard for you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm from the Midwest. Um, and you know, this is, I, I work really hard to sit here. And so like win, lose or draw, like I'm going to walk out of here and, and, and state my mind. And so, and I think he believed me on that. Um, and so I think it was, it was a, a level of directness. I and think so. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's funny that you said that because I to one of my mentees and I, I mentor four other kids in this other um, program called Monkey to Millions. And oh, right. yeah. we, I, I'm mentoring I these like kids it. and I, I actually said to them on, on the last session was, and it, it, it kind of brought back what you just said, I would literally state at the end of the interviews, it's just like, is there anything that's concerning to you about, you know, I really want to be here. Is there any concerning, you know, any questions I can answer about my candidacy here? Because this is really, you know, I really definitely want, I definitely want this. And I think I would work extremely hard for you. And just that, just like that focus and that, that ability to, to kind of hone in and say, like, I'm going to work really hard for you in a way that they believe, they know that you're serious about it and that you're, um, it, it can really set you apart versus it just, okay, yeah, thanks. Nice to meet you. I think it can. Up. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's spot on. And there's so much, uh, so much generic kind of formulaic answers. And, and, and it's not that interviews should be all qualitative by any means. I mean, you have to defend your stocks. You have to say, Hey, pitch me a long, pitch me a short. And you say, okay, well, what cap range? Then you go through that process. Like that's all very good. We can talk about that uh, strategically, but um, outside of that, it's, you know, do I want to work with this guy? Like, you know, cause we'd be, I covered part of the stocks I covered were in Asia. And so, you know, when you have one of the Chinese internet giants reports at four o'clock in the morning, is the PM, does he want to hang out with you at four o'clock in the morning when he should be home asleep, like, you know, in his bed? Yeah. And so you have to be that person 
that has that uh, type of tenacity for one and then that type of, of personality that's collaborative. And I think that's what got me into VC too, is just, I, I love being collaborative and we can obviously talk about the VC side later, but uh, I how think did you part of it. How did you feel like when you're being that direct um, and that almost a little aggressive, how do you, did you kind of lean on your Midwest of, you know, I worked hard to get here and, you know, it was just true, but you kind of leaned on that to prove a point. How well, do you, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have, I didn't have the background. I didn't have like the gold plated background of, uh, you know, an Ivy league undergrad and, and not, not to knock it. Some of my best buddies from Boston are, are, you know, Harvard grads, et cetera. But, um, I, I didn't, I, I had to tell my story from what it was and I had to be organic. And I, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I, I said, Hey, listen, I worked, my ass off to, to break into the, to the wall, into the CFA and like, and then into wall street. And like, I was able to do that. And I want momentum. I'm a big believer in momentum, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a risk, you know, you don't, you can't sell it because they they'll sniff that out in a heartbeat. But if you really mean it um, and you have a sympathetic voice and by the way, like when I was interviewing for the sell side, some of the interviews are brutal. They're just like, well, who are you? You know, you're some kid from the middle of nowhere. And like, why should I hire you? You know? And it was just like, they cut it off right there. Whereas other people were like, wait, you know, you're a musician and you're a composer and you're trying to do this and you're like bootstrapping and like, that's really interesting. Tell me more about it. You know, what do you think? What are your thoughts? Um, with the jujitsu piece, I had interviews. I had guys that actually did jujitsu from New York that would come in and like ask me crazy questions about like maneuvers and like chokes and, you know, joint locks and stuff like to try to feel out if I was like, you know, full of it or whatever. Yes, and, yeah. Yeah. And so it, you just never know, like, you know, you have traders that are really interested in the jujitsu piece and you have like research analysts that are really like cerebral and they're like, what do you think about when you're composing music or whatever? I mean, you just never know where it's going to go. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. And, and I mean, it worked and I, I don't think, you know, it's, it's a risk to be direct, but um, you, that's, that's the shot. That's the only shot I had. So it yeah. sounds, it sounds like your interests played a huge role in your interviews. I think so because it's what I did. I mean, one thing you'll know about me uh, is that I will chase and pursue what I feel most passionate about. And that's just, and I knew, I knew that when I was going to classical music, like, you know, you're going to be broke, but you do what you love. And like, you can be a world traveler, you can be a global person. And like, I knew that going into the business world, it's, it's brutal. It's tough. It's competitive as hell. Um, but it's what made me uh, happy and it's, and still does today. And I'm glad I did it. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Cool. For sure. so, so you're, you managed to kind of do something, say something, maybe it's the, how direct you were. Tell me a little bit about your, now your, your pitches, deciding what, what the long short and did you, how many did you have prepped ready going in and specifically, how did you prepare for that? Were you using ideas from your, your time at the sell side shop to kind of yep. prep, um, prep your pitches? Totally. So you lean on your coverage universe for sure. And, and they should expect that of, of what you cover. Yep. But you also want to have something that's outside of coverage that you actually feel passionate about because in the buy side, obviously you're going to cover a lot more stocks. And so instead of covering 15 and covering really deeply, you cover a hundred. Mm -hmm. And so you're, but you always have blind spots in the buy side. You're probably never going to know as much about one particular name, but you have better visibility to consensus opinion because you talk to all the analysts, et cetera. So um, I think, you know, the buy side is more about aggregation distillation, but as far as pitches go, I leaned on my coverage primarily for long and for short. And then I moved outside of my coverage into software or something like that. That was maybe a smaller cap name that wasn't very well covered that maybe I felt like there's a little bit better review point on, or maybe there was some type of an overhang on the, on the name that wasn't really fundamental to the growth thesis. And so 
um, that's that's kind of how I presented it. it. It seemed to go over fairly well. I interviewed at another couple of places, um, but that that seemed pretty good. And like have multiple cap ranges to pitch in, I would say. And so, were you going in with a like? It sounds like two longs and one short. And for most, I would say more than one short because if you yeah. have a really if you have a consensus short that's like maybe like a passive short, people don't really want to talk about it. You can say, hey, you know, Microsoft's overvalued. Nobody cares about that. Right. You have to say, hey, listen, you know, this thesis is broken because X, Y, and Z. But like. In tech, it's a little harder because a lot of the shorts aren't necessarily like balance sheet driven per, per se. You can't say like, hey, they told me they made this many widgets, but they didn't. Right. It's more of like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit different if you're, if you're trying to short a software name. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I would say multiple shorts and a couple longs is fine. Just different cap ranges. Okay. And then so as you're prepping for these, are you just running screens? You're using Bloomberg? What are you doing to kind of develop your thesis and I mean obviously you're leaning on your universe you said that you're you're familiar yeah. with so you kind of can a couple are probably easy to come up with but then how are you finding those additional ones just just doing some certain you know, certain screens you remember kind of how you filtered yeah I mean I had access to FactSet and Bloomberg and so it's a little bit easier so you have a leg up in that regard mm-hmm. but um you know I, I would say I mean talking to like undergrads or something like you know, probably don't read Seeking Alpha. That's not really going to get you where you need to be. Um, and I would say, uh, and, and it was it was a little bit easier because I was used to writing as a cell sider. And so like writing a thesis that made sense, there's four or five points to it that are the main points. And there's like some sub points for, for your thesis that would defend that, that would uphold that assumption. Uh, valuation's a big deal, obviously. So I felt like I really tried to nail that part of it. Um, mm-hmm. Valuation relative to, and it's fairly easy to build uh, cap tables and stuff from publicly available data. And so if you have a short or a long, it's in everything on Wall Street is relative, right? And so you say, hey, this is overvalued. Why? Because of X, Y, and Z. And like, that's that's a very defendable, it doesn't have to be academic, but it's a very defendable uh, a way to go about it. Instead of saying, hey, this company's a zero and here's why, one, two, and three. That's not really going to necessarily advance the idea, especially to your PM who has, you know, seen how many stock pitches over 20 years. Right. So you're saying make it more of a relative, uh, relative valuation play. I would say, yeah, I'd say that's an easier way to go because you can always expound upon that or, mm-hmm. you know, you can revisit that, but yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you're, seems like you're well-prepared. You, you go into this buy side kind of dream role, it sounds like, and you're talking to the PM and you make a great impression. You're very direct and you appeal to your kind of humble beginnings and your the, how hard and, and it works. And so tell me what that was like, or tell me, tell me that, what was that like when you got the call and was it, were you surprised or did you feel like you had nailed it? I mean, you're always surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're, if you're not surprised, you're, 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 you're not Over- really seeing the world very clearly. But, <laughs> you're too uh, overconfident. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, man, I was elated. You know, I thought that, Hey, listen, you know, I made it. I didn't know where I made it to, but I made it to somewhere and I knew that it was, a, it was a respectable firm. And I knew the guy I was working for was, uh, you know, he's legit. He put up huge numbers. And so I felt like I was going into a great environment. Um, you know, buy side's brutal and, you know, performance can be up and it can be down. And like one day you can be, you know, feeling like you're the master of the universe and the other day you're, you know, in the gutter. And so it's just, it's this huge swing mentally. And so the pressures of the sell side where it's like grinding out the hours, getting back to your clients, doing the IPOs and stuff like that, moving to the buy side which is different types of stress. You can be blown up by one name and you nailed every other thesis or whatever. And so 
you just it, it's a different type of skill set it's it's much more especially now these days is much more data driven mm-hmm. because you're buying you know third party research and you're saying okay well we're scraping 600 million cell phones in china and we're going to see what that cell tells us you know yeah and so it's a little bit it's a little bit of a different skill set and then the stress swings to other parts of um you know your portfolio management and things like that you have to look at a lot more angles but in less depth than on the sell side i'd say so tell me a little bit about those hours on the sell side. What, what do you think you were putting in um, weekly on average? Oh man, uh, earnings would be probably almost banking hours because um, I was on just a two-man team. It was just one senior and one junior. Um, yeah. And we had an MD in our group and, and he had a couple guys working for him, but really it was just, it was a one-on-one relationship, which is great. Um, but it was immensely stressful because as you know, as we know, there's no playbook for this business. And so it's either sink or swim. It's either, you know, die by fire or like you make it through. <laughs> so, so you were doing the, what, 90 hours some week or? Probably not 90 hours a week, like but 80. I mean, there's some weeks where we did 90 if we're, especially if, if we're like, you know, assisting with an IPO process or something like that. But I would say your typical sell side, like junior, junior role would probably be like 60 to 70 probably. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. And then, so when you kind of got into this buy side role, was that were the hours better, but the stress was more magnified because of the, all that every day you're getting feedback on your positions and stuff like that? Is that? I think so. I think it's magnified. The hours are slightly better, but then again, in earnings season, you don't have to write up much. I mean, since we were at a big shop and a lot of the other PMs own tech names, we did internally publish, which is another part of the skill set that smaller firms might not have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but like everybody owns tech. I mean, if your shop owns a billion dollars of Amazon, you, you know, you have to know what's going on and like, you know, you have to be able to communicate that internally. Um, so I'd say the hours are a little bit better, but you know, earnings nights, you maybe have like nine or 10 earnings a night instead of one or two. Right. Um, you'd be able to go home earlier because you know, either position yourself well or you didn't. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's different in that respect. Tell me a little bit about, or whatever you're able to share, tell me a little bit about the, how much in terms of the positioning and stuff like that you guys were, you'd look at like what other funds, large funds were doing or other large holders were doing. Is it, was that always like alerts were everywhere and there was there tech in place to kind of give you guys heads up when there's certain people were moving out of certain positions? Well, you're talking, you can talk to your traders and they'll tell you a little bit of what mm-hmm. they see, but you know, our fund in particular, relative to the asset base that the the mutual fund itself that had all these different funds, our fund wasn't wasn't that big. It was several hundred million. And then we had another fund that was several hundred million. So, you know, call it a billion dollars of capital, right. big enough to start sweating, right? But um, it's uh, it's not so much what your competitors are doing. It's it's um, you have to be somewhat concentrated. And I think the outperformance. If you look at the outperformers in the hedge fund space, it it, it tends to be the same teams that tend to be quite concentrated. And so we're pretty concentrated, um, definitely under 50 longs and our short names would be smaller and a longer tail, but mm-hmm. I'll probably leave it at that. Do you feel like, um, do you feel like that's in terms of the hedge fund universe? I know obviously last year and the year before it's been really, a really tough time. Real, yeah. And so tell me, talk to me a little bit about that. What's the future look like? Do you feel like for, for the industry? I think it's, and I mean, I don't mean to be like, you know, doom and gloom, but just from what I see, I don't, I don't see from my vantage point, you know, my two cents, that's all it's worth. But from my vantage point, I don't see an abatement uh, of head into hedge funds. I don't see an abatement to uh, quantitatively driven funds. I see the two sigmas and the AQRs and the Renaissance. I mean, you have these supercomputers that are, 
you know, they, they hire legions of mathematics PhDs to try to optimize this every single second of every single day. And like human beings are fallible, right? So I, I just, I don't, I don't see a future where the fundamental uh, long short equities will rise to power as they did in the early 2000s, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and just look at that with hedge fund closures. I think that the platform models like the 0.72s, the millenniums, the, you know, surveyors, um, those types of pods, they can be outperformers. Uh, those can be brutal places to work. I know some of them. Um, Tell me but, why. Why are they so brutal? Just to, just to see grinds? Yeah, so like at some of the shops, we'll say, hey, listen, you know, like you nailed EPS, but you missed EBITDA. Why? That comes out of your bonus if you even make it to the end of the year. And <laughs> I mean, so, it, and you don't necessarily have to be brilliant to work there, but I think um, if, if you work on a high-performing team, you can do really well and like you can make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, but it's going to be your life. I mean, you have to be, it's, it's your job is your life for sure. Yeah. Talk, talk to me a little about comp. You mentioned money. Is it, um, mm -hmm. are those kind of pod, those, um, those platform positions in the first few years when you're working there? sounds like it's a high risk job, but potentially high, highly rewarding. Talk to me about that versus like the long only managers and long only, is, mutual. long only is that you have, you have more longevity. You probably have more like visibility into how you're doing necessarily. It's not necessarily like, you know, the mafia where they just take you out back and shoot you or whatever. <laughs> but, um, and again, I've never worked at the platform shops, but, um, from what I understand about them and obviously it varies from team to team. Some teams are much more forgiving than others. It just, it depends. It depends on how your PM is doing as well. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the base, uh, the base on the buy side can be actually quite low, uh, but your comp can vary tremendously. And so, you know, your comp, uh, your, your bonus could potentially be a multiple of your base. Just, right. just depends. And um, it tends to hockey stick. I think when you, when you make this more senior levels, then especially if you um, make senior or even if you make PM, then it's can be very lucrative. Yeah. So you're talking like when you're first there as just like a grunt, you're doing probably like 80 to 100, or maybe even as low as 80 base, even after banking or, or a hundred base. Maybe, like yeah. Maybe like a, maybe 85 to 110 base. Yeah. I mean, and then it's just a total guess, but total guess. But then it, it can jump with a bonus. If it's a, if it's a knockout year, it could be like a $300,000 bonus for, yeah. I'd say that's fair. Yeah. Okay. So you're, and then what about yourself? So you're, you're in this buy side shop was the comp much better from, from the sell side. I mean, it, it, you know, it was, you still, you had, you had decent economics, but it just, it depends on how you did. My base was higher on the sell side, actually. Um, okay. The base was pretty good just because they know they're grinding you and, um, you know, they'll pay you to stick around and you become more valuable over time, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, buy side's a little bit more feast or famine, I'd say. Yeah. Um, so were, you, were the years that you were there, were they good years or was it like a... One of them was a great year. Yeah. And one yeah. of them was a decent year, but not great. You know, mm -hmm. low single digits call it, but um, one year was fantastic. Uh, but it just, it depends. And, and, you know, I think something just, I guess, kind of stay, taking one step back is like buy side, sell side on the public equities. At the end of the day, there is an element. And, and by the way, VC was on my radar like the entire time, but it's just, there's not that many of us, right? But um, It was not or it was? It was always. Oh, it was, more. definitely. Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. But, um, you know, stepping back, I think at the end of the day, unless you're really passionate about the markets, it can kind of feel like you're a reporter in, in some ways. Mm. The, the, the earnings print hits, the stock does well or it doesn't, it trades in the after hours, it probably moves 90% of where it's going to move for the next, you know, month and a half or whatever. Yeah. And like a few minutes after, after close. And so, you know, you write it up, but really 
you know, you haven't impacted that story. You haven't impacted that narrative. You positioned around it. Maybe you feel like a genius. Maybe you feel like an idiot. It's probably coin flip. I mean, even if you have a 55% hit rate, like you're a stud. Yeah. So, you know, it just, it, it's really varied. And, but, but at the end of the day, you can, you can kind of like have that creeping feeling like, Hey, you know, I kind of feel like I'm just parroting the sell side because this brilliant guy at Morgan Stanley or whatever wrote this awesome piece about like this industry and you know, he knows way more than that than I do. And, but like, Oh, by the way, I'm going to tell my PM that I agree with this guy or whatever. So, right. you know, like the value add, it can be kind of, kind of hazy. Um, so just, it depends. And, and so I think like going into it, you know, making the buy side is not everything. It's just, it's, are, are you passionate about investing? Are you passionate about the markets? So I think that's a big question because it, because buy side, sell side, you can still kind of feel like you're just, you know, Kind of reporting the news, they print, you react. Even though it's interesting because you say that even on the buy side, you kind of felt like, well, yeah, you're still looking at the the smartest sell side analysts to see, and absolutely, oftentimes you're just agreeing with that. And you know, where are you adding additional insight? Where are yeah, you adding additional insight? Yeah, and so like you're what what you think the stock is valued at, for example, just to take just a random example, mm-hmm. instead of you know a sell side analyst might say, hey, I think there's 35 percent upside or 40 percent upside on the buy side. You might say, hey, this thing is like I I, vis- I think we have visibility to a triple. Mm-hmm. Whereas if a sell side analyst came out and said, Hey, I think the stock's going to triple in the next 12 months, that might not give him a lot of credibility. That might be a huge risk. Yeah. Whereas on the buy side, you can, you know, march in your PMs off and say, Hey, we should be pounding the table on this. Let's back up the truck. And here's why. Yeah. Um, and so, and you know, you can like not just talk to analysts, but you can use third party research. You can talk to experts. And so there's just, there's more tools you can use provided you have the budget for it. And a lot of buy side shops though, they don't really have budget. They don't really get meetings with companies. They don't really get access to management. I was fortunate enough to work at a huge shop. And so I literally met hundreds of executives and I would do all kinds of like testing the waters, IPOs, all the huge like pipeline out of Asia, all that. I was all involved in that because I wanted to be. Did you feel like you were able to then deliver some unique insight to your PM? Yeah. I mean, you try try as best you can, whether or not he's going to take the ideas, you know, your job is to support the more senior guys at the firm and just to deliver whatever you think is best, whatever's relevant and try to cut through the noise. And as I said before, you know, on the buy side, you're more of of an information aggregator and more of a distiller. And um, whereas on the sell side, you're somewhat network driven, but you're also, you try to at least attempt to have kind of a thought leadership position on something that's differentiated and on a sector. It's interesting. Yeah. In terms of your day to day on the, on the buy side. So were you, what percentage of your time do you think you were doing different things? So like you get, you get to the office, were you on calls most of the day? Were you, you know, putting, writing up investment committee memos? Like what were you looking at? You know, evaluating oh, current yeah. positions? What was the, but like, what was the majority of your day on, in that role? Like, were yeah, you- so, so my role was more like a drummer. You have a whole bunch of different things going on. You have to maybe hit up some of your sales analysts that you really like. You have to talk to, Maybe, um, you know, there, maybe there's a, an IPO deal that your PM wants you to take a Let's look back at. Back up. So sell side, sell side analysts, let's start there. Why are you talking right. to them? Why are uh, you well, talking to them? On the sell side analyst, your day-to-day is, you know, you might be talking to clients. Obviously, you have a lot of email flow. You're cranking out models. You're working on an initiation. You're working on maybe an earnings report that night or whatever. That's day-to-day there. On the buy side, it's more you have a ton of email flow because you have all the banks are shooting their, their research, their deep dives, their earnings, everything, all that. Then you have your whole third-party research dump, and then you potentially have the IPO pipelines coming to town. Then you have meetings you have to prepare for because you have this, you know, revolving door of management coming in. Yeah. And so you have all these different things you have to rank, order, priority. Um, and then if your PM or the guys are yelling at you, obviously, then you have to scramble on that. So um, it's more of like a ton of information flow, and you're on your phone all the time. 
Um, so I liked that more, but it was, uh, it was more, more stressful in certain ways. So you said you kind of had been looking toward BC all along. Tell me, that's very different, obviously, in the public market. So tell me a little bit why that started attracting you. Because I've heard that a lot, actually. I've, t- I've interviewed a lot of people who kind of were like, BC was always, you know, the earlier stage was always kind of really yeah, interesting yeah. to me. So tell me a little bit of why you were intrigued. Yeah, so if you look at a public company, <clears throat> for example, so a public company, they, they do what they do really well. That's why they're, you know, in business, of, you know, printing cash for billions of dollars. But the uh, innovation, I guess, for lack of a better word, at the core, like when you talk to the management, the 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 conditions that that make innovation make sense aren't really always visible to management. And so you have these businesses that are very rinse and repeat; they're very scalable, but you don't necessarily have this in, in really interesting disruptive idea that's an emergent market category. You're looking at what's the market doing now? What are the trends in the market? How's it being shaped? And is the market coming to my views, or is it going away from my views over time? And with VC. Not only do you have to entertain the idea of really living in the future, because you have to say, hey, this person says, you know, I can take a ride in somebody else's car, sleep in somebody else's house. How ridiculous is that? Mm -hmm. You have to be able to entertain all types of ideas that are potentially emerging market categories. And the other part of VC that I liked a lot that you just don't get um, buy side or sell side public equities, in my view, is, um, you know, you're like on the buy side, everything distills to one number. It's just, what is your alpha? How many stocks are you calling right? What are you doing for your team? Whereas on the VC side, it's more strategic discussion. You sit on boards, you talk to people about strategy. You might know that your portfolio company is going to miss numbers for three, three different quarters. Like, you know that you're trying to fix it with them. And so you're much more involved in operational aspects of the business, but you still are able to have a high degree of financial literacy and also uh, the emotional intelligence piece. You know, part of your job is networking and like meeting people and making those introductions and being that connector piece. And so that kind of multivariate skill set I felt fit my personality much better than just being a hedge fund analyst or just being a sell side researcher. And you wanted to be out actually meeting exciting entrepreneurs and just absolutely like, absolutely and like and and even though entrepreneurs can be very eccentric you know you, you never want to try to necessarily discount them when they walk in even if they're dressed like steve jobs because that person had given up everything to pursue this idea and maybe they're brilliant um so i love it it's it's my favorite asset class to work in so far um and definitely bring like the hard financial skill set of the street and then injecting it into vc because you can talk to a, you know one of your portfolio company cfos and like hammer out the numbers or whatever and test the assumptions hmm. um and then yeah you have the emotional intelligence piece so i, I love it i assume a lot of that's like in vcs if there are, are you investing in stuff that's like pre-revenue or like just really early stage not that early so we're yeah. we're series a and series b investors and okay, so, so these companies yeah they found some product market fit you could say um, maybe yeah. they're doing like a couple million in revenue Mm-hmm. Um, maybe earlier, maybe a little bit later, just depends. Um, and then we come in and, and help drive the business and scale it. So when you say you're talking to the CFO and figuring out the numbers, a lot of it's probably looking at unit economics, trying to figure out is, you know, where, what other markets can we bring this to, or how are we going to scale it? Yeah, absolutely. What's, what's happening with the product roadmap? What are they doing with their marketing spend? You know, how are they thinking about headcount growth? Did, and so is that na- was that natural for you just going um, there? It was a a transition. I mean, so the guy I work for, he's he's a brilliant guy and he's, he's been in the space for 25 years, probably more. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's, he's very knowledgeable, especially in like he just does software. Uh, So it's more, you know, when I came in, I think, how should I put this? So he said, Hey, what do you think of this company? Take a first pass of this company. I'd say, Hey, listen, you know, in years two and three, it looks like they're going to do this. I think that might be a little bit of stretch. He'd say, well, you know, what are they doing right now? 
Like, how is the business performing right now? And so it's a different type of modeling exercise as well, because you'd say, hey, we're going to hire eight sales reps. How do you put that in your model? When you're used to a publicly traded company that has like, you know, a bazillion people working in sales, and that's just one line item on like some gigantic spreadsheet, right? Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's much more, hey, you know, Susan disagrees with David. And like, that's a really key customer success person. Like we can't lose them. So how do we think about it? So you immediately jump into like crisis mode. And then you go from like modeling out with the CFO or your headcount growth is like, oh my God, we have this human you know, resource disaster. And so it's a little bit, so the agility has to change a little bit on the VC side. That's interesting. So talk to me a little bit about, you had been kind of interested in VC when you were on the buy side. Talk to me about how you were how you approach just trying to find the, the, the next step in terms of what, you know, how you ended up where you are and that whole process was the interview process really different. I assume it was, it was, I mean, the shop I'm at, so it's a Chicago based, uh, Chicago based firm and mm-hmm. whether they had bias towards Midwesterners, I don't, I'm not really sure, but, um, they, they had the job posting It's an old school shop. I mean, we started BC 40 years ago, so we're on our 13th fund. So it's, it's, it's a known quantity. Um, mm-hmm. And I sent a, a, you know, a letter to the, to the director of research and said, Hey, listen, like, you know, by the way, and he's one of the partners. And I said, like hey, a, listen, snail, a snail mail letter, uh, a snail email letter. Okay. Yeah. I was like a letter. I mean, I've never heard yeah, cause I mean, they, they posted a job on, on the site and they said, Hey, you know, I want somebody that, that has some street experience that can bring, you know, bring to the job. And I thought I was a good fit for it. And I had done my MBA and I, my CFA was taken care of and I had a few years on the street. And so um, that struck up the conversation. It went really well. I came in, I met the partners um, and it was the interview process for VC was definitely different than sell side by side, public side, I'd say. In what sense were they still asking you to pitch a company or an industry or a niche? Yeah, industry? More like, you know, more industry say, Hey, you know, how do you think, you know, is, is the verticalization of software and this X, Y, and Z, you know, subcategory, what do you think is going to happen there and why? And what would lead you to believe that that's actually accurate or, you know, what, you know, is this market, do you think this market's a winner take all or whatever? And then they put you through some exercises, mental exercises. But I think that the VC is so idiosyncratic to the firm that your interview process, should you get one in a VC firm is going to be so entirely different, probably everywhere. I don't right. think it's very formulaic. It's not like, you know, you crank it out when JP Morgan will interview like a thousand people, you know, a week. So how do you think people should prep for this? Just, just do a lot of research on the specific fund you're, you're interviewing with, obviously, but yeah. anything else they can and know your own specific deals and your own specific, you know, background obviously really well but what else anything absolutely else? so so if if you're trying to prep for vc interviews i would i would i would i would do this um and this is something that a vc told me before and that served me very well you have say you write four or five investment memoranda those might be a three to five page document and you don't necessarily have to outline you know valuation expectations or public comps but just have a really clear thesis about how you think this embryonic business that you find through whatever list you can find all sorts of like high growth startup lists online mm-hmm. and just dig into it, go to the website. You could call them up even. And that shows that you have the tenacity and you can put together kind of a tangible because all the time I'll see something on the web and I'll say, Hey, that's kind of a cool business. Let's try to figure out who the CEO is. Let's email them and talk to them. I mean, it's, it, that's part of our job, right? Right. And so if you can demonstrate that and you can demonstrate that you have cogent thought behind it, I think that would serve you very well. And just saying, instead of saying, Hey, I want to be a VC, like hire me. I have cool thoughts about tech. Like, dude, nobody cares. You have to, you know, there has to be a lot there to really be convincing. 
Yeah, it's an interesting point. To, you know, it's not about what you think, especially in the junior levels. It's more about like what can you actually do for the fun in terms of sourcing, in terms of That's right. you know, having smart, a smart thought process after you've done the work. For sure. And you have to bring, you have to, you have to have some type of networking element to it. And like, I yeah. personally love networking and I still have a lot of good relationships with the banks on the sell side when I was a buy side client, because also when I went over to the buy side, I wasn't a jerk. Cause like, right. I know like we're, we're all essentially trying to do our jobs. There's no magic curtain. It's just a bunch of guys that are busting their ass. Right. Yeah. So, um, I think, you know, moving into VC, I, I told them too, when I came here, I was like, I love networking. I love meeting new people. I love meeting entrepreneurs. Even if it's somebody that is never going to be able to help me, I'm happy to connect you with somebody who might be able to, whether that's other VCs. Like we talk to other VCs all the time, whether they're pre-seed guys, seed chase investors, I like talk to private equity firms. Yeah. Uh, because maybe those are the people that take the deal from us uh, when we grow the company up. And so building that network, some people don't like to do it. Some people are more naturally in, introverted. I personally love it. And it's uh, one of the funnest parts of my job. So are you, how are you doing this? How are you meeting entrepreneurs? How are you going out and doing this? Just curious yeah, like your day to day. So like how, yeah, how often are you working with portfolio companies versus doing that stuff? So I do, we, we're pretty high touch. So we actually do quite a bit of portfolio work. Um, uh, there's, you know, we have a couple portfolio companies in the Valley. We go and visit them uh, every board meeting. Um, I do conferences, probably my favorite conference this year. I went to Paris uh, for a software conference. Um, it was fascinating. Uh, I spent a whole week there and I went to, um, and I kind of networked my way into this uh, huge accelerator called called Series F or Station F, I think it's called. Okay. That has like hundreds of companies uh, just like trying to grow their business with these crazy ideas. And, you know, if you entertain the idea for an entrepreneur and say, hey, like, what was the spark? And you meet all kinds of interesting people. I mean, I met one guy, actually, he was in Chicago, um, not at a conference, but he came in to pitch to us. And I said, what was the inflection point for you to like give it all up? this is like, this is, a, you know, he's great, like high level education, super sharp guy. He'd worked on the street before. And so this is like a legit stamp dude, right? Yeah. I said, what, what made you just walk away from all of that and go convince your wife that we're going to sell it all and do the startup? And, uh, and he said he was at that point, he was, um, he had taken a consulting job and he saw some Amish guy go through a McDonald's drive through. And he's like, why am I here doing this when I can be building a business? For some reason, that image stuck in his head and like that was really valuable to him. As odd as that sounds to us, you take him at his word. And but why, why, would, why would it seem an Amish guy going through a drive-through? What was it? Is that religion? Exactly. You, I mean, you, you know, you don't know what like really is going to put you over the edge. What, what, what was that straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing? But for some reason, he said that. For some reason, seeing that image and he was in like rural Pennsylvania working some consulting job and he saw that and for some reason that pushed him to start a company. And so, and that, and, and that's, that's just like in VC, you meet people that have all types of different backgrounds. It's not formulaic in any way. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Just, I'm, I'm sure it's fascinating. I know in private equity, when I was doing that, I think the, the coolest part about the job was meeting management teams and understanding their story and kind of how they kind of got involved or started the business and yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess, what else do you think before we call it, what else do you think is important or something you'd like to share? If you could talk to your younger self, the classical musician, or maybe yeah. some other non-traditional candidates out there, what would you share with them? Um, well, I, you know, as I went through my story, I would, I would certainly encourage if you really do have the dream, you're probably not that many steps removed from it, but you might be several years. I mean, it took me several years of tenacity to try to, 
break into something to try to really reinvent yourself. And it is possible. And I think a lot of people just don't have the tenacity to do it. They're just, they give up, somebody talks them out of it. So going back to my younger self, find your mentor relationships and follow up with them because you never know what doors they're going to open for you. Or even if they can't, it's going to make you a good mentor later in your life. Um, I would say that. And I would say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed that I didn't find like wall street friends, so to speak, when I was in undergrad, even though my, my school really didn't have that, but right. I wish that I had more of a community that exposed me to that because I think I would have taken off like right out of the gates. Um, but again, you know, follow what you love. Actually, something that I've asked a lot of executives over the years, um, and I've met a lot of them, you know, when you're wrapping up, you're walking to the elevator, I say, hey, listen, um, if you were to do it over again, what would you do? Almost invariably, they say something qualitative. I would have been a cook. I would have been an artist. I would have been a travel author. I would have been something other than, you know, they're not going to say, I would have been, a, you know, a prosecutor, an attorney. I would have kicked a lot of ass in New York. You know, you don't, it's not really a common, it's, it's, it's almost always something that's qualitative. And so I think there's always an element for that because, I mean, you know, this just as well as I do, you have a lot of people, men and women that will grind their entire careers in this business and they don't really have a lot of qualitative stuff to show for it. They might have a really interesting track record. They might be very accomplished, might be very wealthy, but they never did get to follow their dreams. And maybe right. that's why they're like, you know, pushing their kid into, you know, whatever, because they never got that chance. And so, you know, follow what you love. And, and I know that sounds corny and stupid, but um, you know, I did that into my twenties and I was still able to make it. So I think, uh, you know, if you think you don't have a shot, you, you probably should, should reassess. Is there any part of you that kind of misses that classical stuff or do you, how do you get, how do you feed that passion, those passions? hundred percent. I mean, because I mean like the best man in my wedding, for example, he's uh, he's a highly accomplished percussionist on the West coast. And like, he's a symphony musician, like he's a high level guy and mm -hmm. he's one of the very few that made it. And um, you know, he doesn't make a lot of money. He does pretty well, but he's, he's not like, you know, crushing it. Like you'd have a P guy in New York or something, but um he really followed his passion. And so if I could have done that, I mean, yes, yeah, so a part of me misses it because you never know what would happen to your life, but I'm glad I chose what I did. I, I still am. I'm still happy, but I'm, I'm more happy that I followed. I chased my dreams. I chased my dreams with jujitsu. I chased my dreams with music. And so awesome. I can, I can walk away and say, Hey, listen, like I did that. I did the stuff that I really loved. And I feel like that brings you peace. Awesome. And yeah, for sure. I, I agree. I think, you know, you're, you only live once, right? So yeah, <laughs> just go for it. Anyways, we'll, we'll end on that. Thank you so much for taking the time, man. Really, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. And thanks again, you know, like for building a community and bringing it where it is. I mean, there's a lot of late nights when I was doing the CFA and studying. <laughs> it was like pretty brutal. And I get on and I read your website and some people just like totally trash the CFA or whatever. And you know, <laughs> you know, I think it's just, it's awesome to, to have the resource and, and I still go on it all the time. So I, I love what you're doing and just keep pushing it forward and, you know. Hopefully Appreciate I'll that. Some young people that uh, want to work on Wall Street someday, and we'll try to try to dissuade them as best we can. You'd sound like you'd be an awesome mentor. So thanks for <laughs> taking the time. <laughs> All right, man. Talk soon. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at WallStreetOasis.com. Until next time.